0: You are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat.
0: How are you doing, Simone? Another week.
1: We have had some nice weather, right? I feel like um, it's a double-edged sword and the fact that, that all of us are staying home and being safe, and so it makes it nice to go out in the backyard You, like Forrest Gump, took your bike all over the city. Um, But it's also like, oh, you know, it makes you a little sad that, you know, this would have been fair and festival season and that it would have been nice days to play hooky for sure. How about you?
0: Yeah, you know, I definitely was feeling the um, missing the void of Jazz Fest on Friday. So I, I was outside as much as possible over the weekend. I went on a nice bike ride around the city. I went on a nice run. I recently joined TikTok, the social media platform. And I have to tell you, I have never in my life felt older. Um, (laughs) It is clearly a thing of a younger generation of which I'm not a part, but I'm learning about it. And and it's interesting. So I don't know, maybe we'll have to explore, uh, you know, what life on the coast and TikTok is like, but I've done that. You and I recently finished a shared book. Um, that we were reading together. Well, not together, but separately, but, you know, at the same time.
1: I don't even know how to correctly spell TikTok. And so I feel like that's the automatic disqualifier for me being on TikTok. So I'm already out, right?
0: It's fun. I am very much in the sit back and observe stage of the platform. We'll see. I haven't started to post my own content yet. I think I'll be la- laughed off the platform if I did. So,
1: do you think Dupree is on TikTok? We should ask.
0: He should be. Well, speaking of Dupree, we're so excited to welcome back a favorite guest of Delta Dispatches, a f- formerly frequent guest that we hope will be again a frequent guest. Um, do not Alex say, Alex
1: do not say <laughs> avid listener, though, Jacques. <laughs> welcome yes, back avid, to
0: the show, Alex. avid listener gets uh, gets us in trouble with certain avid listeners. So welcome back, Dr. Alex Kolker,
2: um, associate professor with LUMCON. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. And just to give you a quick update, uh, Dupree is sitting about 10 feet away from me.
0: Well, I have to say, I've seen you two reunited on social media, and I know you've been going on really great walks with him. And so- um, it's so wonderful to see you two together again, and I hope you're enjoying each other's company.
2: Yeah, it's great to be around my 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 good four legged friend. Um, my uh, you know, I was gone for for six seven months, and I uh, it was an incredible experience, but I definitely missed my dog.
1: So, Alex, how are you doing otherwise? Um, you did have to return home early, but everything okay with you?
2: Yeah, I how you're doing, are good. you know, I, I, you know, I, I was in Morocco for these six, for six months. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I came back and actually the return back while it was harried and a little crazy. Um, it was literally like something out of the movies where I'm on the tarmac on the Casa Casablanca airport and we are the the last commercial flight out. So, you know, with, uh, uh, with a little tip tip to Rick Blaine, it was really a, a setting like that. Um, but I managed to get back in the U.S. smoothly, and then since I've been back, you know, I've been setting things up. I went into quarantine for 14 days. Once I got home, my neighbors were super great about bringing me food, um, and I've been, you know, getting set back up. And I'm and I'm very thankful. I'm healthy and um, and still able to work too. So I'm really thankful.
0: Well, Alex, you're being so modest. You weren't just in Morocco. You were on a Fulbright scholarship in Morocco. And we're going to talk all about that incredible experience and prestigious and well-deserved honor in the next segment. And I love the image of you, um, you know, in a Bolero hat waiting to get off the plane, getting onto the plane, you know, maybe after having one drink at Rick's bar, Rick's Cabaret, um, Definitely a favorite movie of mine, so can't wait to talk more about that. But um, you are also, you know, associate professor at LumCon, and we've been seeing a lot of stuff that LumCon's putting out. How are the folks down at LumCon doing through all of this?
2: You know, we're we're good. Um, you know, obviously we, you know, the main uh, building is is you know we're all working from home. Um, there's you know some of the basic maintenance and, and upkeep that's essential is uh, is going on, but but those of us Uh, that are able to work from home. And certainly that includes a lot. That's a lot of us. We're working from home for for me, you know, as a scientist. Um, We always have to write grants and papers and now's a a great time to do it. Um, So we are staying busy uh, and we're looking uh, forward to getting back onto the coast. Um, You know, one thing that we've got going on is we are actually doing a number of uh, science talks for the public. So every Thursday night at seven o'clock now, pretty much through the end of the summer, we've got a lineup of science talks and they're, you know, we're, we're live streaming them on the web. And so if people want to learn a little bit more about the coast. Um, and you just, you know, you're looking at your computer. This is a great way to do it.
1: Alex, you were, you were on one of the talks already though, right?
2: Yeah. I, uh, I actually gave a talk about how to, um, about how to uh, to look at our, how our coast changes by using online data. So you know there's a ton of data that's online and that you can freely access, and it's a great way to see how our coast is changing. Uh, so there's a lot of, and of course, I look at it even not during quarantine times. I look at that stuff on a regular basis because that tells me what's happening on the coast. And I talked a little bit in one of these science talks about how you can um, how you can use these uh, these data yourself to understand whether or not we're going to flood. It might, you know, impact where and when you go fishing or if you're just curious about about the coast, you can use these data. So my talk is, is I think it's archived online um, and that's what I spoke about. But we've got a whole bunch of other people, uh, some from the Marine Center and some from the other affiliated universities that are coming online all summer.
0: That's so interesting, Alex. And you know, that's something I really didn't realize before starting this work, Um, but how Louisiana has such advanced, um, you know, monitoring tools, I I believe, is it CRIMS that allows for monitoring of the different conditions all across the coast, and it's one of the most advanced in the world. And I, I believe Rachel Rohde with Environmental Defense Fund did a blog about that and kind of really how it's so important for sea level rise monitoring. So I I, I want to go back and listen to your talk, so I can access it
2: on LumCon's website or Facebook. Where yeah, can you I get should. it? Go yeah, on the LumCon's website and on the top of the page you can click and there's a there's a link to our science talks. So if you go to lumcon.edu and you go to the uh, just on our homepage, there'll be a link to uh, interact with LumCon every Thursday, and that'll take you to a link for our science talks, and that you'll see. Uh, the upcoming talks and the archive talks should be up there as well.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. And of course, you know, we gave a, sh- a nice shout out to LUMCON in our virtual flyover that Ryan Chauvin and others worked out. Um, you know, really, you know, the story well, but the tale of two basins and flying out of the South Lafouche airport and then over LUMCON and then going across to the Wax Lake Delta. Um, so really glad we're able to highlight um, the, 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 the lab, the campus down
2: there and all the important work that you all are doing. Well, thank you. Thanks for the, absolutely. Thanks for the shout out. You know, it's Terrebonne Basin. It's both a, it's just a fascinating place to look and see how the coast changes. And of course, you know, at LumCon, we, we, we love it.
1: Well, Alex, we are up against the break. We definitely want to talk to you more about the Fulbright Scholarship. I feel like that completes my six degrees of separation that I, I know of Fulbright. like so that's like, you know, so I want to talk to you more about that so I can impress my friends at dinner parties. But we need you to hang on through the break. Would that be okay?
2: That sounds great.
1: You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll
2: be right back.
1: National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org/louisiana to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org/louisiana
2: <laughs>
0: At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems. Focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats
1: region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org.
0: Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund.
1: And I'm Simone Malos with Restore Our Retreat. We're back with the Coastal Voice of the Week. I support the coast because it's a beautiful place. And that's from Faith in Norwood, Louisiana. We're back with Dr. Alex Coker, a Fulbright Scholar and frequent guest on our show. He was in Morocco for several months, um, understanding how sea level dynamics influence coastal processes along the Moroccan coast. Welcome back to Louisiana, and welcome back to Louisiana's coast, Dr. Coker.
2: Well, thank you, it is good to be here.
0: So Alex, um, I wanna hear all about the amazing experience that you had, and I was able to keep up with some of it on social media. But first, I want to ask, um, you know, what motivated you? What drew you to Morocco and pursuing this scholarship
2: in the first place? Yeah, so that's, I, you know, I wanted to see how in Louisiana we always talk about how we're different. And I wanted to see how different we were in Louisiana to the rest of the world and how similar we might be to the rest of the world, while at the same time, Also, I really wanted to do, do, you know, some science that was really interesting and really neat. Uh, So, you know, there's and so there was a couple things that go on there. I've always, for example, as a scientist, been interested in how winds blow water across the ocean and how that influences sea level. And of course, down here in Louisiana, that's a big deal because a lot of our like our nuisance flooding and coquetry is driven by. Uh, winds, off, winds from the Gulf of Mexico, pushing water onshore and flooding, uh, flooding Parish. Um, Morocco is actually it's kind of close to one of the big atmospheric pressure systems on Earth, and so it's in the coast there is very influenced by wind-driven water level changes. So in some ways there are some things that are really similar, and in some ways there are some things that are really different. And so where were you based throughout the
0: program? I mean, and, and can you? I mean, I I've never been to Morocco. I imagine most of our listeners haven't. So, can you paint a picture of what it's like there culturally, economically, geologically? You know, let, yeah. put us in Morocco right now, Alex. Yeah,
2: so I was in. I was mainly in Rabat. Uh, Rabat is the is the capital of Morocco, and uh, so if you go, it's um it's about 200 miles south of Gibraltar uh, along the Atlantic coast. Um, in many ways, it's it's just beautiful. Uh, so the coast—it's very different from our Louisiana coast. It's a dry coast. It's a rocky coast, um, but uh, and of course, it's also like a really historically significant coast. So Rabat, uh, there's, for example, there's an enormous there's a kasbah, which is basically a, a fortress that's built right on the water, right on the cliffs uh, of 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 Rabat, and then behind that there is a Medina, an old city, and both of the uh, Medina and the Kasbah date back almost a thousand years. Um, so it's a it's a great bit of history. Um, there's also some other some parallels, of course. Uh, Morocco has a strong French influence; it was co- you know colonized by the French, uh, and it has it's got its own long-standing indigenous culture um it has some influences of of african and west african culture uh so in some ways um there are some parallels of course to louisiana which has its own unique culture with uh some with of course a french heritage and and also of course of their louisiana has a very strong african heritage as well in our in our culture here uh so there are some parallels um but of course morocco is you know it's very soundly um Uh, North African, uh, North African culture. So people have been living in Morocco for well over 2,000 years. Uh, it's been at times, uh, settled by the Romans. It's had, uh, influences from, uh, some of the great Arab empires, uh, and it's had its own, uh, its own unique, uh, culture and government, uh, of course, at many points throughout that time. So
0: Alex, um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the challenges facing the region are in terms of sea level rise and climate change? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned so- kind of wind blowing the, the sea up, but what, what are the issues there? Yes. Yeah,
2: so, of course, Morocco is, you know in some ways, it's a desert country, but it's also very much of a coastal country. So a lot of Morocco's economy uh, in some ways revolves around the coast. So some of its largest cities are coastal. So Rabat, like the capital that I was in. Uh, which is right by the coast. Casablanca, which is the the country's biggest uh, city, is right along the coast. Uh, Tangier, which is a historic city, is right along the Straits of Gibraltar. It's right along the coast. Uh, uh, The ports of Tangier Med is one of the largest ports in Africa. It's got a really big fishing community. Uh, Some of the most productive fisheries uh, in, in Africa are along the Moroccan coast. So it's got a lot of coastal, it's got a lot of its economy that's tied to the coast. Um, and of course, because sea level is a global issue, uh, a lot of those uh, industries are, and 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 lifestyles are challenged by, by the threat of global sea level rise. Um, it's also got a lot of coastal wetlands, or not a lot, but it's got, uh, not not to the extent that we do here, but it does have some very important coastal wetlands, uh, that are important stopovers for migratory birds from Europe and Africa. Um, so there are some important coastal ecosystems. And like I said, there's important coastal history in Morocco. So all of these places are potentially challenged by, by rising sea levels and both nuisance flooding and, and extreme flooding. Um, one good thing that I learned about Morocco uh, for is that the rates of sea level rise are a little bit slower in, uh, in Morocco than they are in the global average. Uh, and that's largely because winds push water from Morocco to and, and the, uh, the west coast of Africa to, to North America. Uh, so in some ways, sea level rise rates are a little bit slower, but you, know, you can also get big Atlantic storms and those big Atlantic storms can kick up large waves and, and rise uh, and uh, you know, raise coastal sea levels. And that can be important over there.
0: And I mean, what are some of the solutions being put forth in terms of climate adaptation and, re- and building resilience? I mean, do they have kind of a an entity like their own kind of authority, CPRA, that's that's confronting these challenges?
2: You know, they are they are certainly thinking about some of these challenges. So, for example, one thing when I was there, I was able to go to a uh, a meeting sponsored by the World Bank that looked at that tried to identify hotspots for sea level rise. In uh, in Morocco, um, and I had a chance to be at a meeting uh, by um, by parliamentarians from across the Middle East and North Africa who were concerned about uh, climate change and sea level rise. So there are people that are beginning to to think about these issues. Um, Louisiana, I have to say, one thing that was really you know maybe comforting in Louisiana being abroad was realizing that Louisiana is. In some ways ahead of a lot of the rest of the world in terms of thinking about some of these sea level issues you know not a lot of places have a a coast a single coastal entity uh, that governs that that tries to govern and coordinate coastal issues louisiana i don't want to say we're the only place on earth that has it but but we are in some ways um unique. The coast often falls under a lot of different governmental organizations in places both in the U.S. and and around the world. So um, there isn't like a single CPRA, but there are some very, very smart people who are thinking about the coast. And actually, one of the reasons I wanted to go over to Morocco is that there is a pretty good coastal science community. So I had um, I had sort of two faculty affiliates as a part of the Fulbright program. You're supposed to have um, other scholars and in, in country that you're working with. And I actually had two, one who was a woman, Maria Snusi, who was uh, a coastal geomorphologist, relatively similar to the kind of work that I do. She looked at coastal wetlands and how they respond to sea level rise. Uh, and then I also had a, uh, another contact, Samira Ildiland, who was a coastal lawyer and who looked at policy and environmental policy uh, and specialized in in coastal policy.
0: Well, Alex, that all sounds super fascinating. And we do want to talk about the parallels to Louisiana, but we're about to head into a break. So if you don't mind holding on, we're on Delta Dispatches with Dr. Alex Holker, and we have a lot more to get to. We'll be right back after the break.
1: Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. My name is Simone Malaz, and I'm here with Jacques Hebert of the Environmental Defense Fund. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our podcast.
0: And we are talking to one of our favorite guests and coastal scientist, Dr. Alex Kolker, associate professor with LUMCON. And now also we have to introduce him as a Fulbright scholar. Welcome back,
2: Alex. Well, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So, Alex, you know the drill because you've done this many times on Delta Dispatches, but it is time for our fun question. And my fun question for you is what is the best thing you ate
2: while in Morocco? I know this is gonna sound weird, but I loved the carrots. There were a lot of carrots that people cooked with like spices. And I feel like in America, you know, I mostly was eating like raw carrots. And I don't think that I had ever eaten um, like cooked and spiced carrots. And so I had some delicious carrots. So that, and it opened my mind to like what one could do with a carrot. So I'm actually going to throw that out there.
0: I totally feel you on that. I think I've had some really amazing carrots, maybe at Saba, um, prepared by Chef Alon Shaya and just the spices. I don't know if it's cardamom or what that are used um, for to cook the carrots you know, we grew up having very mediocre carrots, so I, I hear you on that.
2: What is the best thing you have eaten since being back? Ooh, so I've been I've uh, so I've been cooking a lot when I when I got since I've been home, but uh, I've been eating some Louisiana shrimp. And uh, one thing that I'm hoping for is that we pe- people will still be able to go shrimping uh, during this COVID, because I'm very much uh, looking forward to uh, to the start of shrimp season. And eating some fresh well, Louisiana we hope shrimp. The
1: same for the shrimp season, and and hopefully on an upcoming episode, we're going to talk to some friends at Louisiana Sea Grant who has Louisiana Seafood Direct program um, that has been working with some of the fishermen about selling their goods directly to consumers. So hopefully we'll we'll get you hooked up in the future on that, <laughs> Alex. Um, so we um, spent the last segment talking about um, your research and your time in Morocco. What, what did you find most surprising or, or what did you think was just kind of your aha moment there?
2: Well, you know, my, maybe my, my aha moment was realizing how similar Louisiana was to some of the rest of the world. You know, in Louisiana, we often think of ourselves as very different, um, which of course, in some ways we are, right? But, you know, one thing that makes the Louisiana coast sort of, you know, very different from a lot of the U.S. is this combination of energy, uh, culture, and ports. Um, And that these sort of, it's sort of an unusual overlap for the rest of the U.S. to have this, you know, vast coastal ecosystem that both depends on energy, ports, culture, um, and tourism. Um, And seeing that and while that's unique and somewhat unique in the U.S., being able to see that across the world made me realize that actually the U, thats that—that that is in some ways Louisiana is more similar to the rest of the world. So, for example, Morocco uh, ports are really important. So they've got some of the largest ports in Africa. While uh, and, while uh, hydrocarbon resources aren't a big deal, other mineral resources are. So Morocco has a really large phosphorus. Uh, exporting industry that depends on, that depends on the coast uh, culture. Of course, Morocco is got this incredible culture um, and, uh, and, is, and, uh, and, you know, which is partially dependent on tourism. Um, and, you know, seeing, I actually had this amazing opportunity while I was over there to go over to Jordan. Um, and, you know, and actually while Jordan is mostly landlocked, there is a, a town, Uh, Aqaba that's on the Red Sea. Uh, And again, ports are, of course, incredibly important there. Um, Jordan doesn't have a lot of energy resources, but just across the border is Saudi Arabia, which, of course, has huge energy resources. Um, Tourism is important. People come to the Red Sea to go uh, scuba diving. So to see that the model that we have in Louisiana is... uh, is replicated across the world, I think was really the big aha moment for me.
0: And Alex, I mean, you're back in Louisiana now and and kind of, you know, you're con- going to continue to research and work in the, in the, you know, important work of our coast and, and coasts here. So what lessons do you want to bring back um, or have you brought back from Morocco that you think folks in Louisiana that are doing this work should listen to?
2: Yeah, so I think a couple big lessons. One is we're not alone. We might seem like we're alone in the U.S., but we're but we've actually got a lot of connections to the rest of the world. Um, another is we're doing something right. Louisiana is um, it does have one of the largest coastal programs, um, really in the world. Um, I don't know if it's the very largest, but it's a really big one, and they do and Louisiana is doing a lot. Uh, so, by having a very large science-based program, uh, it, we're doing something successful. Um, but uh, there are things that are important looking to the world ahead. Um, it's important that while that we remain inclusive, one thing that I learned is just how important it is to make sure that every group in society is included. In, uh, in environmental decision-making. And so one thing I saw abroad is just the importance of being inclusive in terms of all sorts of groups. And so I think that that's something that we need to uh, continue to do here in Louisiana. And then finally, the importance of global sea level rise. Uh, sea levels are rising. They're rising relatively, you know, uh, they're rising faster than they used to be, but not as fast as they could be. Um, and the rates of sea level rise that are going on now are rates that we can probably deal with if we're smart and creative. But if we get to the kind of higher rates that are predicted um, uh, by the middle of this century, a lot of us, both in Louisiana and across the world, are going to have a lot more difficulty and that's going to be bad that's going to have a lot of implications for our economy for our culture for how we move around the world and so we really have to think about how do we keep global sea level rise rates slow
0: it really just shows you know how connected we are in this challenge um and in terms of you know this has impacts on everywhere from you know, uh, New Orleans to Morocco and, and and well beyond, right? So I, I think that's such an interesting point. Um, Alex, were you able to share some of your research and your work in Louisiana with you know various audiences? Uh, yeah, Morocco? I actually gave
2: yeah I gave a number of talks while I was over there. Um, I actually was le changement climatique le monte niveau de la mer. So I gave a lot of talks on the on sea level rise uh, and climate change. Um, and uh, some, of, some of them were in English. I got to uh, work a little bit on my French. Um, and so I was able to talk to people across Morocco at a couple of different universities, uh, also in, uh, during my trip to Jordan. Uh, and I was able to talk about Louisiana and what was going on in Louisiana. And that was also a really, really rewarding part of being over there.
0: And, and do you plan to stay connected with, you know, the, the other academics you worked with, some of the other folks that you met? And, and do you th- think there's an opportunity for
2: more collaboration going forward? Absolutely. So I, I continue to be in contact with uh, with some of my collaborators over there. There are some ways that I potentially could go back. And so I'm actively looking into those. Um, some of them are grant funded. Some of them are other opportunities. Um, and I think that there are, I'd also love to bring people either from Morocco or Jordan here to the U.S. to talk. So I'm actually, I'm actively looking in, into some of those opportunities. I think there's a lot of ways uh that we can continue to work together and i i hope to do that over the coming years
0: well alex if you need someone to accompany you back to morocco you know to help maybe with some communications maybe i'll have some lessons on TikTok i can share with the folks over there i'd be more than happy to do that um but you know we're up against a break we're going to have you back for one more segment because Big news happened while you were abroad in that you made your debut on the big screen in Last Call for the Bayou. So we want to get your reaction to that and the films and, and more. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO nine ninety AM, always available online, deltadispatches.org. We'll be right back after the break.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat.
0: And I'm Jacques Ebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And it is time for our Coastal Stat of the Week. And this is from a new article by Tristan Barak with the Times-Picayune, New Orleans advocate. Um, Tristan reports on how climate change and flooding will make Louisiana's fire ants bigger, meaner, and their bites nastier. According to the article, saltwater flooding seems to magnify the ants' aggressive traits more than freshwater flooding. And this is based on research um, by Dr. Linda Hooper-Bui, an LSU wetland ecologist. And her research found that coastal flooding caused a 72% increase in the volume of venom sacs in individual fire ants 24 hours after a flood event, whereas venom sacks of inland ants increased by just 34% after a freshwater flood. Fire ant colonies in areas with frequent tidal and storm flooding also tend to breed bigger, more aggressive ants than their inland counterparts.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that good news, Jacques. (laughs) I I am now going to be very afraid of fire ants. (laughs)
0: Just another reason, right, to uh, work to restore the coast and, and uh, reduce sea level rise because we don't need massive mounds of uh, venomous, meaner, nastier fire ants coming towards us. So, Alex, have you
2: ever been bitten by a fire ant? The question is not have I. The question is how many hundreds of times have I been re- bitten by a fire ant? Yeah, they're they're certainly mean and nasty. Ouch. Yes. Um and, you know, I, I often wear sandals in Louisiana in the summer because then the water can come in and out and my shoes don't, I don't care if my shoes get wet, but the downside is I do get a lot of fire ant bites.
1: I was going to ask if, if ant bites is a hazard of being a coastal scientist. And I think you just wow. confirmed that.
2: Yeah, it, 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 it is. And, and I don't worry too much about a few bites here and there, but certainly, you know, it could be. Um, and, you know, if you came across a big mass of fire ants, like that would be a problem.
1: Field. Yeah, Tristan had a lovely picture to accompany his story, and so in case the the image alone that you conjure up in your head isn't frightening enough, he accompanied it with um, with a picture. But let's let's move to to nicer things. Um, Alex, was the paparazzi waiting for you when you came back from your trip? Were they waiting for you because you made your big debut um, for Last Call for the Bayou? Congratulations.
2: Well, well, thank you. That was a fun that was a fun film to be a part of.
1: I, I loved your um, vignette, if you will. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, how the origin came about.
2: You know, I just got a call from Nadia and Dom who were making – probably the phone call is from Nadia because she does a lot of the phone calls. Um, but I got a phone call from them, and they asked me if, if I would be interested in being in this. Um, and so I think they called me up – I guess it was a, like two falls ago – um, and, uh, and they just called me up and I said, that sounds like fun. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so
0: cool to think about how long these films have been in process. And then, you know, they were actually out in filming and editing and then to see them debut on Smithsonian Channel, um, was, was awesome. But, you know, the, the films before they came out on Smithsonian Channel, they went to a number of different festivals. Of course, we were partners uh, and promoting sponsors at the New Orleans Film Festival when they were here. You weren't able to be at the New Orleans Film Festival, Alex, but you were at another festival, right? Tell us
2: about that. I think think the first time it was screened was at the Aspen Mountain Film Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, So just before I went over to Morocco, uh, I was able to go out to Aspen for a couple of days um, and there was a film festival out there and the the film screened. uh, uh, screened in a uh, like a sort of like a hotel conference room, and people really responded. There was actually a woman who, in the audience who was originally from Homa who asked a lot of great questions uh, at that time. But uh, it was really neat to be to be part of a film festival, so I really enjoyed that.
0: Have you watched the films again since they've uh, premiered on
2: Smithsonian Channel? I have watched. I will confess yes I have watched them I don't, I will confess I have not watched them 100% of the way through because I saw them when they came out but I have watched them and they are I have to say the the sim- cinematography and the filming is beautiful um, and I also really like the way that they got a uh, cross section of the coast you know they really got people of different ages different backgrounds different professions different lifestyles um, so I really like they I really like the diversity that I saw in the in the film
0: and for those who may have not seen Last Call for the Bayou, they can do so. They can go to the Smithsonian Channel Plus online or their Facebook um, or you know, YouTube. But tell us a little bit about the film you're in, Alex, and what the film covers.
2: Yeah, so the film is Mud, Sweat, and Fears. Uh, and it looks at some of the science of, of how we build land in Louisiana, so, and uh, I'm not the only scientist in it. Uh, actually, a, a former Molly Kehoe, who was at the time, uh, my PhD student, who is now Dr. Kehoe, uh, is also in it. And it looks at us as we uh, look at the Davis Ponda version. Uh, and then we also, uh, so there's some times when we're out sampling uh, sediment. You can actually see a little bit of me eating mud. Uh, Molly and I eat mud. Uh, in the film, in part because eating mud is a fun way to, and and actually a useful way to tell the difference between uh, very small particle sizes. Um, So there's a little bit of mud eating in the film, but it also follows us as we look at diversions and in the context of rising seas here in South Louisiana.
0: Yeah, I have to ask, I wonder, are you kind of like a mud connoisseur? I mean, are there different Flavors of mud. I think I will say when I was at the New Orleans Film Festival um, uh, screening, and it was a packed house. uh, People loved that part where you were just kind of tasting the the sediments and the mud. So that's definitely a fan favorite from the series.
2: There, there are different um, different textures and different flavors of mud. Uh, So you know, uh, basically, when we often bite them, you see if there is you know, as a sedimentologist, we often think about. But sediment being sand, which is, you know, kind of coarse, silt, which is uh, moderately fine, and clay that's very fine. And the way you can tell the difference between silt and clay is that silt, you can touch with your, uh, you can feel it by, by biting down on it a little bit, whereas clay is completely smooth, um, and you can't, you can't taste it or feel it at all. Actually, there's a little bit of, uh, in a lot, some of the fast food restaurants will put in uh, clay into their milkshake to make it smooth, milkshakes to make it smooth. Uh, so you can actually taste it there. Sand, I forget, I don't think this was in the movie, but sand you can sometimes hear. If you put sand uh, between your fingers and you rub it uh, next to your ear, if there's sand there, you can actually hear the sound a little bit.
1: So I will say that um, while I should have been shocked, I was not totally shocked by the mud eating in the film because I have seen Dr. Denise Reed eat mud before. Um, So I I could have um, anticipated that was coming. But um, I just want to remind everybody, because we're almost to the end of this segment, that Alex and and the other filmmakers and some of the other folks in the film, um, Albertine and... uh, Kasha and Ben Depp, they're all going to be part of a live virtual panel today uh, at 7 p.m. Central. So tune into the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Facebook page to watch. uh, And you can also ask the questions of filmmakers and the panelists. So thank you for being a part of that, Alex.
2: Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'll I'll talk to you in an hour or two.
1: Very good. Very good. So Alex, uh, just one quick question before we go. What's next for you?
2: What's next is uh, is returning to Louisiana. I want to bring some of what I've learned in Morocco, particularly about sea level rise and, and how we cope with it uh, here to Louisiana. Uh, and I'm interested in continuing to look at sea level dynamics across the coast, partial, you know, in Terrebonne because we're at the front lines of it globally, but also how we continue to, you know, have a global Louisiana view. Um, so that's that's next for me.
1: Very good. Well, we look forward to anything that you're working on, Alex. Um, so just a reminder again, Alex and uh, the other filmmakers and the folks in the film will be on tonight. Tune in to Restore Mississippi River Delta Facebook page. Another one in the book, shock.
0: I know. Great job, Simone. And thank you so much, Alex, um, for being a guest on this week's show. And I hope you and Dupree have many more beautiful walks in your near future. We're happy to have you back and congrats again on the Fulbright Scholarship. What an amazing opportunity. Um, and yeah, we're grateful that you took the time after your Fulbright Scholarship and your big movie debut to still be on our show. We're very flattered.
2: Well, thank you. And or in Arabic, Shukran which is, thank you. Shukram. Shukram.
1: That's a curse word. Don't say that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, it's not not a curse word. It means
0: thank
2: you in Arabic. Shukram. Uh,
0: Well, thank you, Alex. And we'll have to share recipes on on cooked carrots in a few months after we try out our different uh, experiments. So it's been another great show on Delta Dispatches and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.